Let's uh, pray one more time, please. Lord, we just pray that the Word of God would um, touch our hearts and change us and mold us to, to be more like your Son, Jesus. So we pray, Lord, that um, it would not be something that goes in one ear and out the other, but something that lodges in our heart and causes us to know you in a deeper and greater way so that all the good things that we do and everywhere we walk, Lord, your name might be proclaimed, both in our actions and in our words. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. John Newton, the slave trader, turned hymn writer and preacher, the one who wrote Amazing Grace, which seems to be the most popular song for Christians and even non-Christians I think that don't know what they're saying around anyway, the, the great song. He said this toward the end of his life. He says, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. That would be the greatest thing you could remember, wouldn't it be? That you, on your dying moment, And that's the heart of the gospel, that we're great sinners and Christ is a great Savior. C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, and they've made movies of it and everything else, so I'm sure most of you know about Narnia. And C.S. Lewis was an atheist, and he was transformed by the grace of God. He was delivered from his dark atheistic ways and brought into the kingdom of light and we see the picture of his life expressed in the words he wrote in the first book of Narnicle, the lion, the witch witch and the wardrobe and the words that he said about Narnia in this first book, he said it's a place where it's always winter and never Christmas And if that doesn't describe people that are walking in darkness, I don't know what does. It's always winter and never Christmas. There was a man named Harry Winston that was considered the greatest merchant of fine jewelry in the the world. And he was watching one of his salespeople one day showing a diamond to a very rich man. And he noticed that the salesman did everything in a most expertly way of showing the diamond and describing its features. But the gentleman ended up not buying the diamond. But before the man left the store, Harry Winston, the owner, asked if he could show him the diamond one more time. But instead of talking about the quality of the diamond... He turned it over in his hand and talked about its beauty. So moved was the gentleman that he bought the diamond. And afterwards, he asked Winston, Why did I buy the diamond so willingly from you, but didn't hesitate saying no to your salesman? And Winston replied, That salesman is one of the best men in the business. He knows diamonds 
but I love them. It's not how much we know about God. Rather, it's how much we love Jesus that's going to make the difference. We can know all the things in Scripture, but if we don't love the Lord with a passion that shows, then it's not going to translate very well to the world. Almost everyone is attracted to the spectacular, to what's exciting. Bigger, better, no one wants the ordinary. The same thing over and over again bores us quickly. Give us what's special, the things that radically impact our lives. And a lot of people view church in the same way. Bigger, flashier, wonderful new building, some new teaching that's going to have a radical impact on my life. But Jesus said that the goal of the the Christian of the church is to make disciples that means preaching and teaching his word he said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold I am with you always to the end of the age. The church's mission is the ordinary ministry of the word of God and of the sacrament. We can see how this affected the apostles when we watched their lives after they received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. They preached the gospel, they baptized people, and they began meeting on a weekly basis. And shortly afterwards, they planted a church. This happened in Jerusalem and gradually throughout the whole world that was known at that time. And this work, this ordinary work, keeps going on today. The local church is the Lord's method for gathering his people, for teaching, for preaching his word, for nurturing your faith and my faith, and binding us together in his love. This doesn't appear to be wonderfully exciting to the world. No halftime shows. No rock concerts, no big-name celebrities. But Jesus, in a parable, compared the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. In Matthew 13, 31 and 32, Jesus said, get to the right chapter, He said he presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it's larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest 
and its branches. A tree doesn't grow big It doesn't grow by big and great and wonderful and marvelous events, but it's a slow, steady growth that comes with sun and rain year after year. And the same thing is true of the kingdom of God. As a rule, it doesn't grow by what the world considers a work of or a mark of success. Big buildings, build big budgets big names. Instead, the kingdom of God grows in simple and often small services where the gospel is proclaimed, where ordinary members love and serve one another. So what's the kingdom of God? It's a simple question that often gets a lot of different answers. In Matthew 3, 2, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the kingdom of heaven in Matthew is the same as the kingdom of God in the other Gospels. Simply mean it simply put, it means God reigns. God rules. That's the kingdom of God. And later in Matthew four twenty three, we read that Jesus was going throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Jesus proclaimed the word of the king. The kingdom of God originates in the very act of creation. That's where you first see it. The Lord is king over all of his creation, which means that he reigns over everything. And he reigns over everything that we can possibly touch and see and think about. The earth, all creation. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were required to submit to the law of the king. That's the image that they were made of, the image of the king. It meant that eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if they did that, they were rebelling against the king in whose image they were made. The first result of God's rule was a time of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul tells us in Romans 14, where he says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. But when Adam and Eve sinned, all that was lost. The reign of God over creation was challenged by an act of rebellion. Righteousness was replaced by unrighteousness. And the result was a breaking of a relationship of peace and joy between the king and his people. But God, as we know, was determined to reestablish the reign of grace over mankind. And so he called Abraham out of paganism 
And he promised to give him a land in which to live. And at the time of the exodus from Egypt, he brought out Abraham's descendants, and he proclaimed that they would be his special people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. The Lord would rule over the whole world with righteousness and justice for the sake of his own people. But once again, sin challenged the Lord's reign over Israel, just as as it had earlier challenged his reign over creation. His chosen people rebelled against him, and they broke the covenant, looking to other masters and other so-called gods. So the kings that God had given to his people, to lead his people, in righteousness, instead led the people into idolatry. So instead of righteousness and peace and joy, Israel experienced the curses of a broken covenant. And it happened again and again. The Lord the great king left the temple and you see it in the book of Ezekiel he left the temple the place where he chose to reign on earth and he left and he left it open to all all the enemies of Israel to come in but even As he left Israel and Judah to the hands of their enemies, he sent prophets. And the prophets, even while they were carried away into exile, foretold a time of a new beginning. A new kingdom that was going to be founded on a new covenant. A new heaven, a new earth, a new world that was going to come into being. A return to Eden, an Eden-like peace was going to be proclaimed and was coming. And this new people were going to be led by a new king, a king after God's own heart, and that even the Gentiles would be included. The new kingdom was not going to be an immediate kingdom. It would only arrive after trials and tribulations and difficulties. And it was going to start like a tiny pebble, but it was going to end up growing into a mountain. And you see this in the book of Daniel. When Jesus arrived, he was speaking about through a backdrop of all this Old Testament information. All these expectations that the people had because of what the prophets had said before. God himself had come to dwell among men to accomplish his eternal goal of having a people for himself. The kingdom of God came in the person of Jesus more than 2,000 years ago, but we haven't seen the final fulfillment. The kings of the earth might proclaim their glory, but God proclaims their end. 
The kingdom of God is the only kingdom that lasts forever. And God's kingdom consists of God's rule over God's people in God's place. That's what the kingdom is. God has established his king, Jesus. And by his spirit, he gives life to the people through his word. God's people are now, we're wanderers and aliens. The book calls it strangers in a strange land, aliens in a place that's not their home. And that's what the people of God are right now. We're not home. We're walking as exiles, making our way through the wilderness to God's place, the land of promise, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, and the new earth. So while we're strangers in this strange land, we have instructions from the king. The king says in Matthew 5, 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, but does anyone, nor does anyone, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus calls his disciples the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Two substances that permeate and transform our food and the darkness where we, where we are found, where we live. And like salt and light, the church is to have a transforming effect on the surrounding society. Salt gives flavor. It's a preservative. It causes thirst. People are supposed to be, or disciples are supposed to be all three. We're supposed to cause thirst to others, that they would want the gospel to satisfy their thirst. We're preservative. We're preservative for society that's falling apart, that's coming to pieces in our very sight right now. Salt that stays in the salt shaker is no good to anybody. But that's what we've been taught by the culture. Keep the salt in the salt shaker. But we can't be a preservative to a fallen society if we're isolated in some small group. We can't cause people to thirst for the truth if they never hear it. If fear or being uncomfortable holds us back, then how are we honoring the king whose rule is forever? How did the apostles demonstrate their faithful and 
faithfulness and love for Christ. They did it by boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus in spite of great opposition. They rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. One man's called it the honor to be dishonored and the grace to be disgraced. How many of us want that? But that's what we're called to do. That's what the disciples were called to do. And they went aside and went back and counted themselves worthy to be dishonored for the name of Jesus, to be disgraced for the name of Jesus. So in addition to being salt and light, Matthew 5 also says we're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a large lamp and put it under a basket, but on a light, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. If you notice, Jesus doesn't tell us to be salt and light. He says that's who we already are. You're already salt and you're already light, so live like what you are. It would be absurd to have a light and then hide it under a basket so that it can't be seen. Instead, we're supposed to let the light shine. And the light that we are comes from Jesus. It's a reflected light. Years ago, people used kerosene lamps to light houses, to light rooms. And it didn't take long before the the glass tower of a kerosene lantern became dirty. It became with dirt, with soot, and it had to be cleaned constantly because if you didn't clean it, Pretty soon, the light didn't come through. Regular cleaning was an absolute necessity. And the parallel, spiritually, is pretty clear. Regular and contrite confession of sin and drawing close to the source of light, Jesus is absolutely necessary if our lights are to shine brightly. And light also reveals truth and exposes evil. Jesus said he was the light of the world. And it's significant that the first recorded spoken words of God in the Bible are, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. In Ephesians 5.8, Paul says, You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. He doesn't say you were formerly in darkness. He says you were formerly darkness. And now you're not in the light. You are light. Of the roughly 1,189 chapters in the Bible... There are only four that give us a picture of God's people and God's world free from the influence of sin and death. The first two in Genesis, the last two in Revelation, and everything else in between, sin and death reign. 
the entire the entire unfolding of redemption is bracketed by four chapters of sinless wonder in the beginning and sinless wonder at the end. Doesn't it make sense that we ought to become as familiar as possible with these four chapters in order to understand how we are to live the right way under the reign of God's grace through His Son? If the kingdom of God is God's people living in God's world under God's rule, then we need these chapters to understand what life in the kingdom means for us today. What will the what will the glorified people of God and the transformed unique look we're supposed to have, what's it going to be like when we look at the return of Jesus? To read God's unfolding story of redemption is to realize that the Garden of Eden was just a preview. It's just a preview of coming attractions. The more we read John's vision and revelation, the more you realize that the new people and the new world that's coming It's going to be like the Garden of Eden on steroids. That's what's coming. So it's not pie in the sky. It's what the king of the kingdom promises. John's vision is meant to empower us sacrificially and joyfully to serve the one who reigns now because of his resurrection and he will reign forever this is the king that we're called to be like this is why we are salt and this is why we are light to proclaim the glory of the one that's coming the kingdom that's here partially but not yet altogether that's the king spending time thinking about these things meditating on what it's like to see Jesus face to face changes our whole perspective about everything all of a sudden it's not a formality it's not something that you do because you have to it's because the joy transforms your life and it transforms your heart because that's God let's pray Lord, help help us to understand that there's a great beginning, there's a great ending. And everything in between, Lord, is your story on how we're getting from one to the other. What you've done, what you're going to do, and how you're going to do it, and the king that you brought to rule over it. Lord, help us to understand and to love your word and to love your king. And we ask it in the name of your king, Jesus. Amen.